Good morning. I think I know most of you, but my name's Dave. If any of you don't know me, I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church. And uh, it's my privilege to have opportunity to open the word for us this morning while Pastor Mike is making his way back from <clears throat> regions beyond. This is actually a message that I, I tried to give to uh, Mark Holbrook's Sunday school class a few weeks back, and I, I couldn't get through it. I, I only got through the introductory remarks. And so, uh, so this is all fresh. I, I never made it. And what we're going to be looking at is Second Peter. And what I've grown to love as I've gone through First Peter with the college group and ended up going into Second Peter, I have just loved Peter's forthrightness, his succinct manner, his ability to get right to the heart of an issue immediately without worrying about anything else and just getting right to the needs of the moment. And he does that for us in Second Peter as well. This is actually, Second Peter was the last book to be recognized as part of Scripture, as part of the canon. <clears throat> Some of the argument was, well, the language of First Peter was different than the language of Second Peter. There were some different topics. I'm thinking, this is Peter. Are you kidding? Of course it's going to be different. He's all over the map. But in his second, in his, in his second epistle, he, re, he states that he was there at the transfiguration. He states that he heard the voice of God. And besides that, he opens the book saying, Simon Peter, an apostle. And this little epistle to these people in northern Asia being part of God's word. And it certainly speaks to us powerfully in that sense. He does start this book off, though, rather strangely with a couple of comments he makes. And I'd like to go ahead and have a stand and read Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 as we begin. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for every word that comes to us in the Scripture and for this little book and the things that you've shared with us by the writings of Peter as dictated by your Holy Spirit. We would ask that this morning, even as we glean from what he is sharing with these believers, things for our lives, that would impact us, Lord, that we might more wholly please you be conformed to your likeness, and that we might run the race with diligence that you've set before us. We thank you for it and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> As I mentioned, Peter says a couple of slightly odd things in this passage, but the one that struck me immediately was his comment in verse 4, where he says that he's given us these promises that God has that we might become partakers of the divine nature. I, I read that and I think this is practically blasphemous to be partaker of the divine nature. 
In fact, the definition of blasphemy is the, the act of claiming for oneself the attributes of God. And here, Peter is saying, you're going to partake in the divine nature. There's been examples of this all through history of those who have claimed for themselves the attributes of God. Even Satan in the garden with Adam and Eve. Eat of this fruit, you will be like God. And we've had this problem ever since. Some of the early pharaohs and Chinese emperors either attributed godlike qualities for themselves, claimed to be deity, or their followers claimed it on their behalf. More recently, we've had a number of people. Arnold Potter was one of them in the 1800s, a divisive leader of the Latter-day Saints, claimed that the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ indwelt him and that Christ himself indwelt him, and he was Potter Christ, the son of the living God. He was killed when he attempted to ascend into heaven when he jumped off a cliff. And his followers took the body away. In the 1950s, we had Krishnaventa, who founded the Wisdom, Knowledge, Faith, Love, Fountain of the World cult in Simi Valley. Makes sense. He uh, claimed to have led a convoy of rocket ships to Earth from the dying planet Neophrates. He was killed by suicide bombers, members of his own cult, who accused him of embezzling funds and being intimate with his, their wives. Some of these are funny examples. But more recently, we have Jim Jones with the horrendous suicide. And uh, unfortunately, to this day, we recognize drinking of the Kool-Aid that stemmed from this. And we have David Koresh with the disaster in Texas, who also claimed qualities of God. And this has happened all through history, all the way to the end. We see in the book of Revelation that Satan and the beast are breathing out blasphemies, attributing to themselves the qualities of God. And yet here Peter, in an almost similar fashion, is saying, you will become a partaker of the divine nature. So there's a little bit of a dilemma, but we have scriptural commands for us to actually and divinely be transformed to attain the attributes of God. Let me share a couple of these. These are direct quotes from Scripture, but I'm going to put them in the first person. Tell me if these don't just sound a little bold. I am planning on sharing God's holiness. I am an imitator of God. I am conformed to the image of Christ, and I will be glorified. I have the mind of Christ, and my new self is being created in the likeness of God, and I plan on being a partaker of the divine nature. Doesn't that sound just a bit audacious? A little bold? We typically wouldn't say that about ourselves, but those are claims, those are rather commands in Scripture that almost sound like we're to affirm for ourselves the qualities of God. Let's get some background and see why it is not blasphemous and that it's actually commanded by God to all true believers. It's important to see the background of the group that Peter is addressing. It is apparently the same group that he's talking to in his first epistle, in 1 Peter. And we know that in that epistle, he's addressing a group of primarily Gentile, some Jewish believers who are being scattered throughout northern Asia because of the persecution under Nero. They were leaving because Nero was coating some in wax and lighting them on fire. Others he wrapped in animal skins and fed them to dogs. Others were beaten and ill-treated and misunderstood and abused. So they, they were running. And Peter in that first epistle does everything he can to encourage these believers to make sure they're staying on track. 
And so for them, what he does is outline the greatness of their salvation. He has their salvation, the preciousness of it, the purity of it, the value of it, and he's constantly reminding them. In the midst of that, he says, submit to one another, submit to God, and suffer well. That's the message initially to the believers who are scattered all over the place because of the persecution. A couple of years later, Peter writes this second letter, apparently to the same group. Things have calmed down a little bit, it would appear. And he's got a, he's got a little different message. Now that uh, they're relocating, they're in homes, they're still all over northern Asia. And on top of that, Peter knows he's about to die. Look at chapter 1, verse 13 and 15. Peter says, I consider it right... As long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I also will be diligent that any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. Peter knew he was going to die. And like anyone who has that realization, if he's going to write a letter to someone, he, of course, is going to put together the most critical, concise, important things that he knows they need. And that's exactly what Peter does. His whole focus is on, interestingly enough, holy living. The first chapter is all about living a holy life and how that happens. The last chapter is keep in mind that the earth is coming to an end and it's incumbent on you to live a holy life as a result. And in the middle... He has a couple of warnings, making sure that they understand that there's going to be people in their midst who are going to try to push aside that thinking to cause them to get distracted and to come astray and be led astray and not to have a holy lifestyle. His whole focus is there's a life to be led that's holy before God, and the entire book is wrapped around that. Jonathan Edwards wrote in the second volume of his works, he said, we ought to continually be growing in holiness and in that respect coming nearer and nearer to heaven we should be endeavoring to come nearer to heaven and being more heavenly becoming more and more like the inhabitants of heaven in respect of holiness and the conformity of God the knowledge of God in Christ in clear views of the glory of God the beauty of Christ and the excellency of divine things all other concerns in life ought to be entirely subordinate to this. When a man is on a journey, all the steps he takes are subordinate to the aim of getting to his journey's end. Our son Luke left yesterday morning for Missouri, and the plan is to propose officially to his fiancée in Missouri. And I guarantee you, Luke has nothing about the journey in his little mind right now. He's got one thing on his mind, and it's getting the ring on Lauren, period. I asked him how the truck was running. What truck? He doesn't, he doesn't even know. He does, he's beside himself. He's got one end in mind, and Peter does as well. Peter's at the end of his journey. His focus and perspective are crystal clear. At the time of death, no one's concerned about the color of the drapes, Right? We've got the important stuff in mind, and that's what Peter's got. Everything important, Peter's trying to wrap up in the succinct little gospel to encourage these believers to live a holy 
life. The point of Peter's message is to these believers that God has granted to them and to us everything required that we might fulfill his desire and command to lead a holy life. Okay, let's start with the definition. What is holiness? W.E. Vine said that holiness is separation to God and the conduct befitting those separated. A.W. Pink adds that holiness consists of that internal change or renovation of our souls whereby our minds and affections are brought into harmony with God. Here's my working definition. Holiness is the God-ordained, Christ-focused, Holy Spirit-empowered cooperation of the believer to put on the new self, which in the likeness of God is created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Okay, here's the short version. Holiness is Christ-likeness, okay? And that's the thesis of today's message, to demonstrate the command for holiness for the believer and then to outline the lessons provided by Peter so that we might exercise absolute dependence and vigilance in order to grow in Christ-likeness. This is God working in us and us working out our salvation. Some of you are thinking, holiness. Is there a more archaic thought than holiness? Or you're thinking, how can I think about adding holiness to my life when the dishwasher just broke down and and the car needs tires? And I would respond that A.W. Tozer commented on this, saying the right view of God is the solution to 10,000 temporal problems. When we get to heaven, we're not going to think back and say, man, I, 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 I knew I should have put Pirellis on the car instead of Sears tires. Holiness is an integral part of our faith. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord, says in Hebrews 12. It's often been said, and I was thinking about this, that the reason we're not immediately transported to heaven upon our salvation is why? What do we usually hear? So that there's people around to share the gospel, right? Global evangelism, missions. And I'm not discounting that at all, but you can make at least a strong, if not a stronger, biblical argument that the reason we weren't transported to heaven immediately upon our salvation is that we might live a holy life. Where do I get that? Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. That wasn't talking about heaven. I was talking about now. Maybe there's a concern over, over it's not cool to be holy. Um, most of you guys aren't cool. I, you know, I hate to tell you that. So, <laughs> Besides, 2 Corinthians 6 says, You know what? Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters. God isn't concerned about that. First Peter 2 says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Some of your versions say, A peculiar people. I've known you for a long time. A people for God's own possession. Or that it's only needed for heaven. We don't need it now. We need, we're going to get it in heaven. G. Campbell Morgan reminds us that if we talk like this, We give evidence that we think death will be able to do something for us that the living Savior cannot. Philippians 2.15 says that you're to be blameless and harmless, children of God without blemish. Where? In the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. This is now. 1 Peter 1.25, we're commanded to be holy like He is holy and to conduct ourselves in fear. When? 
during the time of our stay upon the earth. This is for now. Or you might say, it's just impossible. That's my reason. And I'm most likely to agree with you on this one. I'm with you on this one. Except that Augustine said, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. God has never commanded something of his people that he wasn't available to provide the result of. Don't get me wrong. Anyone who knows me well, my family, my kids, I, I make no claim to this at all. In fact, the reason I'm, the Lord has me in Second Peter right now is because of this need in my life for holiness. And maybe it is in yours as well. So I come this morning as a, as a beggar among beggars. We need this. This is commanded. This is critical in our Christian walk. I've been concerned because there seems to be an unhealthy... A lot of us came from an unhealthy background of legalistic behavior in churches. And it seems like there's been an unhealthy swing back, not back, an unhealthy swing to this freedom in Christ that we're reveling in, that if we're honest with ourselves, is nothing more than the indulgence of the flesh. And I think we have to be very careful. While legalism isn't going to get us anywhere, this freedom that we say we have in Christ to do this, do that, is actually indulging the flesh. And I think we're mistaken here, and I think we have to be careful. It's because of this that Peter gives us just not the reminder that we need to be holy, but he tells us how to be holy. He gives us four critical lessons on becoming holy. If you're an outline person, I'll give you the four points, since we don't have the benefit of the overhead. The first one is our precious faith. The second one is our practical knowledge. The third one is divine power. And the fourth one is magnificent promises. The first one, precious faith. Peter says, I'm a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ in verse 1, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Odd comment to make, Peter. Why not just say you received the faith from Christ? You received the faith the same kind as ours. When he says he's received, the idea there is that it was gained by, by the drawing of lots. You know, when you're given a bunch of lots, you know, a bunch of sticks, and there's one shorter, and you pick out either the long one or the short one or whatever it was that means you have to do something that you probably didn't want to do, you had no choice per se in the matter. That's this idea of receiving. It's attaining by the lot. Or the same idea is being there and readying your lap and catching fruit that drops from the ground. This idea of receiving faith is a perfect tension of God's election and calling and choosing us before the foundation of the earth and at the same time us receiving faith as the response to the call of whosoever will may come. Our faith is of the same kind. I, I think Peter's probably thinking back to his stay in Joppa with Simon the Tanner when he had the sheet lowered when he was on the roof and God said to kill and eat and as only Peter does, refuses God's command. And so it comes down again. And Peter finally makes his way to Cornelius' house, right? And while there, he preaches the gospel and he witnesses the Holy Spirit come upon Cornelius and his family. And Peter's blown away. In fact, he relates the story to the Jewish church and says, I, I preached the gospel. The Holy Spirit came on them just as it did us. They have the same faith as ours. Peter was amazed at this though maybe shouldn't have been. We have the same faith as the apostles. We have the same faith as 
Calvin. We have the same faith as Newton, as Luther. Great men of God, we've received a faith the same kind as ours. And the faith is by the righteousness of Christ. It says in verse 1, We've received a faith of the same kind as of ours, a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter was amazed because the Gentiles had been granted repentance to life. And Isaiah 49, God in his infinite mercy before eternity passed said, You know what? If I'm going to send my son to the earth, to become man and to die, to take the place, to absorb my wrath and take the place of sinners who would accept him. It's too small a thing, Isaiah says, that this would just be for the nation of Israel. I'm going to make you a light to the Gentiles. And praise God, I'm a Gentile. I, is there, I don't know if there's any Jews here. We're mostly Gentiles. And it's because of this promise that we've received a righteousness of the same kind as Peter's that was allotted us because of God's mercy. Colossians 1, 26 and 27 says, The mystery that's been hidden from the ages past, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what Peter was talking about. You have the same faith as ours, the faith that is the reality of Christ indwelling. So it's a great blessing to believers to recognize that we have the righteousness of Christ by this faith, but it's also a potential stumbling block for non-believers. It seems like virtually in every culture, there's the idea that you can attain heaven by weighing out your good deeds and your, and your bad, de bad deeds, right? Virtually every culture has some form of the same idea, that if I'm a little better than I am bad, that that's going to get me into heaven. And yet... Isaiah says that our righteous deeds are, forgive the crudity of this, but this is exactly what Scripture says. Your righteous deeds are like the bloody, filthy, menstrual rags that are to be thrown away. That's the level of goodness that these are before the eyes and mind of God. Trusting in the cosmic balance isn't going to get anybody anywhere. In fact, it could be argued that those good deeds that some non-believers are going to bring to Christ, Lord, Lord, look at what we did. That if this is what they attain to, those good deeds are of themselves blasphemous, or at least idolatrous. So if anyone is here has not received the faith as the same kind as ours by the righteousness of Christ, Christ alone is the one who absorbed the wrath that's being built up even now that's going to be released on non-believers at the end of the age through the shed blood of Christ who willingly took our place and imputed righteousness to any who would receive him and claim him as Lord he granted eternal life if you haven't done that please think on that today secondly practical knowledge so this precious faith first of all seems a little obvious but we have to be a believer because that's the only way it comes. Anything else is filthy rags. This is the righteousness of Christ. Practical knowledge must be attained. It says in verse 2 and 3, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge 
of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. There were false teachers running around saying, you don't need Christ. You don't need, you don't need to change anything. What you need is this intimate secret knowledge that we have. And by the way, we'll sell to you. And, uh, and it involves some kind of you know, secret handshake, whatever it was. Uh, that's not what Peter's talking about. Peter's saying this knowledge is a practical learning knowledge. In fact, the word is, is uh, epigonosko in the Greek, and there's several words that the Greek uses to describe knowledge. One is a, a, a knowledge that kind of has an overriding uh, sense of knowing something to be true. In other words, if I, were to, if I were to stand on these chairs, which to my knowledge I don't think I've done, I know those chairs would support my weight. I just know that. Um, and there's many things like that that we know. We know that if we push those doors open in the back, they'll open, even if you've never done it before. That's not the knowledge talked about here. This is an experiential knowledge. It's the knowledge that John described when he was in his first epistle, saying that what we heard, what we saw, what we beheld, what we touched, that's what we're declaring to you. It was this intimate, experiential knowledge of Christ. And that's what Peter is saying is necessary. It goes past the perfunctory knowledge of words on a page and a periodic Sunday visit or growing up in a family where, where uh, our parents were Christ or something like that. It's much more experiential. It has the idea of the doctor who practices and he learns and he practices and he's involved and he's engaged. Alec Baldwin, uh, I think it's a Capital One credit card commercial where he's sitting in an airplane, right? And doesn't he start to fiddling with the controls and the, and the pilot reach over and kind of slaps him and says, you know, what are you doing? And Alec says, hey, don't worry. I've, I've played a pilot. As if playing a pilot makes him a pilot, right? And Rick Holland recently used a similar illustration to draw this into the spiritual realm where he said, the appreciation of a spiritual truth isn't the same as the application of a spiritual truth. The understanding of a biblical concept isn't the same as the outworking of a biblical concept in our life. Liking Jesus isn't the same as living for Jesus. This knowledge that needs to be attained is basically primarily gotten through the scriptures, but it's always focused on the knowledge of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. How do we become more like Christ? We see and appreciate and engage and recognize the beauty and magnificence of Christ through the word, through the fellowship we have as believers, through the deeds of the saints, through singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. That's how it happens, through this experiential, intimate knowledge, primarily through the Scriptures, always on Christ. Practical knowledge is essential. The next one, divine power is the source. Verse 3, seeing that His divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. There's three things to see here, all in verse 3. First of all, that this divine 
source of power is willing, that this divine source of power is able, this divine source of power is comprehensive. Verse 3, it says, this divine power has been granted. That word in the New Testament is only used three times. Two of them are here in 2 Peter. The other one is when Pontius Pilate granted the body of Christ to Joseph of Arimathea. And the idea is that you have one of higher authority, higher power, willingly bestowing on another something. So we have God who is granted, who's bestowed, who's given divine power that holiness might be attained. Secondly, the the divine power is, is able. It says that this is divine power. This is universe-expanding, earth-shattering, wave-stopping, sea-calming, blind-man-healing, sin-forgiving power that has the stamp of the divine written all over it. That's what he's talking about. That's the source that we have granted and bestowed to us. Lastly, it says that this divine power has granted to us everything all things. It's a comprehensive power source. I looked up comprehensive power source online and found that you could buy one at several electronic stores for $48. I don't know what those are, but it's not this. This is divine power that bears every mark of God. In fact, it's what Jesus discussed in his last discourse with the disciples in John 16 when he said, I'm getting ready to leave you and I'm going to enjoy the glory I had with my father before the world began. But I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to leave the Holy Spirit with you. And he said an amazing thing. It's better for you that I go and the Holy Spirit remain with you. Huh? Jesus with you? Knocking on your door? It's time for breakfast. That, that's not what he He says it's better that the Holy Spirit is with us. That's how come we who are believers in Christ, have received a faith of the same kind as Peter's because we also have the Holy Spirit. It's better than having had Jesus with you for those three years that the Holy Spirit indwells us. Acts 1.8 says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Colossians 1, You will walk in a, worth, in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Same thing. Strengthened with power, by glorious might, for the attaining of holiness. So divine power is the, is the source. The fourth thing is magnificent promises. Verse, verse 4. It says by his own glory and excellence. By these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. These promises have divine quality. The promises are by his glory and excellence. They're based on his glory and excellence. Hebrews 10.20 thinks, 1023 says that he who promised is 
faithful. And many times in the New Testament it talks about the promises of God being sure, being reliable. I'm reading through the Old Testament and in Kings and Second Kings and Chronicles, which you know is largely a documented record of Israel's failures, right? And how many times after one of the kings or one of the battles or something happens and it says, but not one of God's promises ever failed. It's repeated several times. And even Peter says, we have the promise of his coming again. In fact, some will say, where is the promise of his coming? And yet we know that it's sure and that it's reliable. These promises carry inherent victory. In verse 4, it says that by these you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. They help us escape the world's corruption. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that there's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to everybody, right? But that God will, with the temptation, make a way of escape. With His promises, there is inherent victory. Lastly is the, the outcome. Partaking of the divine is the outcome. I hope you caught a theme. These first four things we didn't have anything to do with. They were all wrought by God. This faith that we receive, this power that's available, these promises that are given, this knowledge of the divine, those are all from God. What does this power look like practically? What does practical holiness look like as it shows itself? Kath and I were at a missionary conference uh, many years ago. And during one of the, uh, the breaks or one of their orientation sessions, I can't remember, the moderator, curator was explaining where we would go next and what workshop was here and there and whatever. This was at a big megachurch down in, in San Diego. And as he was talking to us, you could see that he was, he was a little bit distracted by what was going on in the back. Not a big deal, but he was a little distracted. And the janitor was in the back uh, emptying waste baskets and clearing off table and sweeping up scraps of food and, and uh, he's going along and then finally he's, he's done and he leaves the room and the, the moderator says I just wanted to let you know that that was the senior pastor of the church he decided that he would for his service to you all who are coming here make sure everything was clean and he took on the janitorial duties for the sessions Richard Wormbrand is a um, Romanian pastor who was imprisoned under the communist regime spent many years in prison, wrote the book Tortured for Christ, and went through uh, horrible beatings. He was working with a young convert named Joseph and explaining to him some of the righteous acts, some of the deeds uh, that, the, that the other saints were doing, some of the kindnesses that he was seeing. And he described how in Ward 4, which is the, the block of rooms where you would go before you would die, Ward 4 is when you had tuberculosis, you were going there to die, and Richard was in Ward 4 a couple of times. But uh, one of the believing prisoners there had received a couple of packets of sugar cubes, which were better than gold, and they had the potential of providing health. And the believer that received those sugar cubes said, you know, brother so-and-so I think needs these worse than I do, and so he gave them to him. And then when he got them, he said, oh, you know, I think, I think brother so-and-so needs these worse than me, and he gave them to him. 
Richard said, telling to Joseph, he said, you know, those sugar cubes, they came to me twice. And he said, as far as I know, in the course of a year, no one ever ate them. He describes this to Joseph, and he says, you know, the reason I mention this is because believing in Jesus is not such a big thing. To become like Christ is truly great. Peter gives us some of his own examples in verse 5 and 6. He says, For this reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and Christian love or godly love, agape love, That's what the practical outcome looks like in our lives. What is our part? First of all, I would say dependence. We notice these first four things are completely wrought of God. Our part is essentially nothing. But we do know that we're the branches, and He's the vine. And without Him, we can do nothing. And so there's an ultimate dependence on prayer, on recognizing that we get it from the knowledge of Christ seeing His face, allowing us to be transformed. There's a vigilance required by not quenching the indwelling Spirit. And the 4th of July, over at Matt's house, we always have all the fireworks lined up, and they're all in patterns, and they decide which ones are going first, and they're all staged, ready to go. And there's always a uh, a, a five-gallon pail of water there. And these fireworks are going and shooting sparks and light and everything else, and then putting the water to be quenched. And when we interact with the Word and our, and our fellow believers and we know truths of Scripture and we suppress those truths, we won't grow in holiness. We're quenching the Holy Spirit. We need to be diligent and vigilant in not doing that. The second thing is not resisting the external pressures that the Father gives to us. Peter, these other believers were suffering. He said... He didn't tell him, get away. He said, suffer well. He said, this is exactly what God's using to transform you into His likeness. When the car breaks down, when the job gets lost, when the wheels fall off, whatever it is, God is using those external pressures to force us to become more dependent on Him, to lean on Him, to trust on Him, to search for His promises, to apply them to our lives. To remember And when we do that, God does a a work in our hearts that causes us to respond. We become Christ-like. William Law, in his A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, uses different fictitious characters to make a point. He describes a young businessman named Penitence who's on his deathbed, reflecting on his life to his comforting visitors. He knows he's going to die. He says, if I now had a thousand worlds, I would give them all for just one more year so that I might present to God one year of devotion and good works such as I have never considered before. He goes on to say how in business he used prudence and reflection and wisdom and rules and gave all diligence to understanding how men worked. He had his eye on every purpose of business, and he studied every means and way of profiting in whatever endeavor he took. He said, but why have I not brought any of these attitudes to my religion? 
What possible reason is there that I, who have so often talked of the necessity of rules, methods, and diligence in worldly business, have never once in all this time thought of any rules, methods, or arrangements that would carry me forward in a life of godliness? Regarding this book, Law says, if we will here stop and ask ourselves, why are we not as pious as the primitive Christians were? Our own heart will tell us that it is neither through ignorance or inability, but because we never thoroughly intended it. Again, it's only by our faith and His promises and His power and the knowledge of Christ but there's a vigilance and a diligence as we work out our own salvation that's required. The great thing is there's a positive outcome. Verse 10 and 11, quickly, it says that we will be fruitful and the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior will be abundantly supplied to you. There's many scriptural admonitions about holiness and how it's applied that I'd love to go over, but I want to stop with just one illustration from Ephesians 5 where it talks about Christ and the church and His love for the church and His desire that the church be cleansed and pure that He might present to Himself in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she should be holy and blameless. What bride is there that doesn't spend all her efforts and all her time preparing for her wedding in order to please her husband? And if we fast forward to Revelation 19, in the heavenly scene, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. We want to prepare ourselves as, as this bride through every diligent, vigilant, God-dependent means that we can. If there's any thoughts, actions, anything you're doing that you know is outside of the bounds of Scripture, I would ask you, stop, reflect back on life's end and this time. I don't want to show up in heaven and my righteous linen is, you know, my old Levi's. I want it to be white and bright and clean as we prepare ourselves. So that's how come we encourage one another. That's how come we're here this morning to do exactly that. Peter wraps up his message to these believers by reminding them that since they look for a new heaven and a new earth, to be diligent, to be found in Him, in peace, spotless, and blameless. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you that your word is true, that your word is reliable, that your word is powerful, that it's life-giving, it's faith-giving, that it has everything pertaining to life and godliness that we could desire. Lord, we would ask by your Holy Spirit that you would continue to move among us and bring these things to mind as we search the scriptures as we fellowship with one another, Lord, that we would give a, a diligence and a dependence on you for all things, that we might live in a manner that's pleasing to you, and that one day we might hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. 
We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.